pray. Holy God and gracious God, we thank you for the word and we ask for a movement of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, our minds, our very soul this morning so that we simply know Jesus evermore. We know your grace and mercy evermore. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit evermore. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last three weeks, we've been in the Old Testament. The reason we've been in the Old Testament is that we have been taking a look at God's promises and how they have been fulfilled. And thus, the promises, we have seen hope, comfort, peace, joy. But the hope that we have seen, the hope we have learned about, is not temporary, but eternal. The comfort is not but for a moment, but it is everlasting. And the joy is transcendent. So how can all of these things be eternal, everlasting, and transcendent? Because they are found in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, God's promises from long ago have been fulfilled. And so we're going to take a look at one more promise. One more promise for Advent, and it is the promise of life. Because when things look bleak, and sometimes they do, they look bleak, and there seems to be no promise of life anywhere. In Christ Jesus, there is always life. Life and light. This was a very important message for the nation of Israel, and I think it's an important message for us this very day. And that it is cloudy out right now, too, and dark seems to actually heighten the message for today. Isaiah lived in a time of decline in the nation of Israel. The, Israel, the nation of Israel was in desperate situation. You see, the king had rejected God's clear commands, God's clear words and promises, and instead he, forced, he, he went against them. He formed political and military alliance with the Assyrians. But that alliance backfired as if, Political alliances in the Middle East never backfire, right? So they backfired then, they backfired today. But it was dire for the, for the nation of Israel because they faced either death or deportation. These seem to be the only two choices facing them. Now the nation of Israel, they, they wanted a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah but they were a very stubborn people. In fact, Isaiah calls them blind and deaf. And in chapter 10, preceding, just before chapter 11 in Isaiah, God talks about how He will break down the proud. As if it was a great forest, He would chop down all of the proud down to just stumps. It says this, Isaiah chapter 10, The glory of His forest and of His fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body. 
and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Imagine, if you will, a a glorious forest. Wonderful, big trees that have just been all laid waste. All chopped down, destroyed. I mean, you've seen where there's been forest fires, right? And everything is just destroyed. That's kind of the imagery that we have here. And you think, can there ever be any life in this forest? I mean, we've seen that. There are so many wildfires that have been here in Arizona since I've been here. And you think, can can life come from this? That was the nation of Israel. And so we're going to take a look at God's promises that there will be life. Where will this life come from? What will this life be like? And finally, how will this life rule or judge? Three things. So, where will this life come from? It says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So what does this mean? From the stump or the root of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Do you remember who Jesse is? David's father. He's David's father. Why is that important? Because it is from David that there will be one who rules forever and ever. That's the promise from Jesse to David all the way down manifested in Christ Jesus. This is the promise that was given to David. This was the promise that was given to the nation of Israel. And this is the promise that Gabriel tells Mary. In Luke chapter 1, he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But why doesn't the prophet Isaiah just say, there will be life from the stump of David? Why not say from the stump of Jesse? Well, it speaks really to the humbleness and the humility of the Messiah. You see, King Saul was not a good king, and the Lord removed him. And the prophet Samuel had to go and find another king. And so where did he go? Well, he actually went to Bethlehem. And there was Jesse, an upright man, but nothing out of the ordinary, but an upright man. And Jesse had seven sons that went before Samuel. Seven sons! And each time the Lord said, no, 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 no. And finally, the prophet Samuel says, do you have any other son? And Jesse's like, well, I, I do, but he's the youngest, and he's a shepherd out in the field. Samuel says, go get him. Because the Lord looks on the heart. And so the Lord God chose an unlikely king for the nation of Israel. And David would become the shepherd king and it was a glorious time in the nation of Israel. But now in the time of Isaiah, 
the glory was far, far behind. The nation of Israel really had crumbled. Now people remember the glory days, and they were waiting again for Messiah for more glory days, but it was a dark, dark, desperate time. And yet there was this promise of life. Life from the stump of Jesse. You see, in the midst of death, the Lord brings life where it looks like there is none. The Lord brings life. I mean, this has been from the very beginning. The Lord promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child when Sarah was way past the age to even conceive, let alone give birth. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, she was barren as well. And yet God promised life. And there was life. But it is not just physical life, is it? It's spiritual life as well. You see, God talked to Ezekiel. And he said, prophesy to the valley of these dry bones, the state of Israel, where it seems spiritually dry and desolate. And there was life. God promised the nation of Israel that there would be life. And that is the promise. That is the promise that we find manifest, made full in Christ Jesus. Life in Him. You see, in Jesus, there is life, and the life was the light of men. That's from the Gospel of John. Listen, I know that the culture we live in right now is more and more against Christ, against God and His Word. And for some people, they think, well, the glory days of America and other nations have gone behind, right? And we start to take a look. And that's what the news promises, preaches all the time. The news preaches darkness and despair. But don't let that get to you. Don't let that get to you. And if you are in a personal place of grieving, of darkness and despair, don't let that overcome you either. Because in Christ Jesus, there is life, and there is light, and it is eternal. God gives life where there seems to be none. That's the promise. And you can hold on to that promise. So, this is where the life will come from. But what will this life be like? And here we go to verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There's really no other place, certainly in the Old Testament, where we find the fullness of the Spirit of God being upon the Messiah. As a matter of fact, when you take a look at this, you will find that there are seven aspects about the Messiah. And if you've been in Bible study, in Revelation, we talk about the symbolism of numbers. Seven represents a perfect number. 
So the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. Seven things. Seven attributes of the Messiah. Now, what we find here really then is the fullness of the Lord is perfectly and completely given to one, the Messiah. Nowhere else do we see the fullness of the Lord perfectly given to one, the Messiah. So we're going to start with first the Spirit of the Lord is upon him because that's the overarching one. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now where in the life of Jesus do we find the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him? In his baptism, right? In his baptism, it says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But you see, the Spirit of the Lord isn't just resting upon Jesus in a temporary manner. With all the other kings, all the other prophets, everybody else, the Spirit of the Lord has rested temporarily upon them. But here, the Spirit of the Lord is with him. Completely. And not just in a little measure, but fully. He is fully given the Spirit of the Lord. It says this in John chapter 3, For he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Here, the Father, through the Holy Spirit, has given without measure. I mean, when you think about God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, they are without measure, right? Everlasting to everlasting. Nothing can contain them. Here, Jesus is given the fullness. The Messiah is given the fullness of the Spirit, and all things are given into His hands. We never find anyone else described like that in all of Scripture. This is the promise that Isaiah made 700 years before, actually the promise God made through Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born. That's pretty amazing, right? I mean, I can't wrap my head around the fullness of the Spirit. But I don't have to too much because he explains what that means in the next several parts of this verse. So it says here, it says, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Okay, generally speaking, the older get, we get, the wiser we get. Generally speaking, right? Maybe sometimes. <laughs> Spouses are looking at each other like, eh, I don't think so. <laughs> um, we do that because we make a lot of mistakes. That's how we get wiser, right? I recently saw a video. It was a great sweet little video about a group of senior citizens who got together every uh, Saturday at a restaurant. They were just the regulars, right? 
And they would sit and they would talk to each other and solve all the world's problems as, as, as we might do. Well, one day, somebody asked them because they was, there was a farmer's market that was opening up. And uh, they said, hey, would your group just come to the farmer's market, sit there and just give advice if anybody wants it? And on, on a lark, they said, okay. So uh, here it is. They have a booth called Old Coots Giving Advice. And the subtitle read, it's probably bad advice, but it's free. And you know what? They are the most popular booth at that farmer's market. People just come because they really want wisdom. They want advice. And it's not just, I mean, the, the video clip I, I heard, somebody talking about uh, lawns. You know how to have the healthy lawn. But a woman came and asked about marriage because her husband had cheated on her. I mean, they, there were people who were hungry for advice. Now, I do like the headline. It says it's probably bad advice, but it's free. But they were giving earthly wisdom, right? They were giving earthly wisdom. And really, if you think about, well, what is wisdom itself? Wisdom is knowing the difference between right and wrong, between truth and falsehood. And so they actually had some pretty good earthly wisdom. But there's a difference between earthly wisdom and godly wisdom, isn't there? See, uh, people can very easily get puffed up, prideful about how wise they might be, you know, about all things. Maybe you've run across them, know-it-alls. That can even happen in a church. Paul had to deal with that with the, uh, the members of the church of Corinth, the Corinthians. He actually had to write this because they thought they were so wise in everything. He said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it says this, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's the crux of the matter. Who is the Messiah? He is the Christ. Christ means Messiah. He's not only the power of God, he's the wisdom of God. You see, Jesus doesn't just have God's wisdom, he is God's wisdom. From the very beginning, he is the wisdom of God. It says this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, this, is not his mother called Mary? 
Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? It is because Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. He is the eternal wisdom of God. And so the prayer really is that this this Christmas Eve, this New Year, people don't seek to be wise in their own right. They seek to be wise from Him who is the wisdom of God. Proverbs chapter 2 says this, For the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth, comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom comes into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. This is the one whom we should seek, where wisdom and knowledge come into our soul. So he has the spirit, he is the spirit of wisdom, knowledge, of counsel and might. Counsel and might. You know, in another place in Isaiah, one that is read every Christmas time, there is a passage that says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a child is, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You say to, see, to say he has the spirit of counsel and might is to say that he is a wonderful counselor and mighty God. Two things, the same way, same way to say, different way to say the same thing. There we go. Lord God, give me your words right now. (laughs) To say that he is a wonderful counselor is true because he gives God's counsel, not earthly counsel. And if we actually followed his counsel, there would be much greater hope, comfort, joy, love, peace, and prosperity for all of us. So we are to seek, yes, amen, we are to seek His wonderful counsel. And to say that He has might, that He is mighty God, simply means this. He has the power to do what He desires. To restore sight. To heal the lame. To bring the miracle of faith, of believing to unbelieving hearts. See, that's my desire, is that more and more people know Him as Lord and Savior, and I rest upon His might and His power to do that. And His power is unlimited. Hebrews chapter 1 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Look, if I want somebody to fulfill the promises 
that were made in Isaiah, I would want somebody who is mighty God. So he has the spirit of counsel and might. He has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now in this regard, I'm not going to spend much time on knowledge because we've been really talking about that. He knows all things. He has the wisdom, understanding, the very mind of God. I'd rather focus on the fear of the Lord. Most people in our culture today, right? When you say fear of the Lord, it actually has a negative connotation. Fear of the Lord, why should I, I'm supposed to be afraid of God? Well, in part, yeah. I mean, it's just like the sun, right? The sun on, on sunny, sunny days gives us warmth. But when it's 115 degrees outside, do you stand out in the sun all day long? No, there's a little fear of the sun, right? So, yeah, there's a certain fear of the Lord because of His majesty, His power, His glory. But that's not it. That's not what we're talking about here. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is to revere God. The deep relationship of love and reverence for the Father is part of Jesus' relationship with Him. But it's more than that. In verse 3 from Isaiah, or from chapter 11, it says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, our culture doesn't understand that at all. Not at all. Delight in the fear of the Lord. Well, let me give you a, an interesting tidbit that might help. So, the root of the Hebrew word for delight means to smell with pleasure. How's that? Kind of odd, though. His smell with pleasure is in the fear of the Lord. Just doesn't work, does it? So, you know, words have different meaning nuances, so we say delight. But smell of the Lord, smell of pleasure, actually has a sense to it. I mean, it brings a, a whole sense of the body the mind, the emotions, everything into the forefront. I'm going to do dangerous territory for a moment because do you remember the smell of fresh bread? It's dangerous because everybody's going to be salivating in a moment, right? Or the, really, if you want to sell a home, what do you do? The old thing to sell a home? You bake bread and have that bread smell in the home, or fresh cookies, right? Okay. Now, you get how that just relaxes your whole body and there's a delight there that's deeper? What about, and especially moms, when you got a newborn and you smell? Right? That newborn smell? And it just brings up a whole sense of emotion, doesn't it? It is that love pours out. It is a deeper sense of delight, isn't it? That's the sense we're getting at here. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. Jesus' relationship. 
Jesus' relationship, his reverence and love for the Father is his delight. Love pours out of him to the Father. And it is this delight that actually carried Jesus to the very end. It is delight, his love for the Father that had him carry the cross, that had him be crucified for us because love poured out. And in turn, you also find that the Father delighted in the Son. So who is the Messiah? It says this, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That is the Messiah. That is who the life is. And how shall the Messiah judge? It says this, He shall judge. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Righteousness. It's not a word you find very much outside the church, is it? And especially when you look at the world today, you don't find righteousness. So what is righteousness? Righteousness actually speaks to moral purity or perfection. The Messiah, Jesus, the Christ... Morally perfect. Moral perfection. Morally pure. And because he is that, he judges perfectly. You see, a lot of leaders nowadays, they judge by what is politically prudent, right? What's appropriate? What do the polls say? Let's do judgment on that. Or they will say, well... Here's what I like. I'm going to judge but why I like or what I dislike. But in this case, Jesus does not do that. He does not judge by what the eye sees or the ear hears, but he judges the heart. And with perfection, he can do that because he himself is called the Holy and Righteous One or sometimes simply called the righteous one. That's a title that Jesus has, the righteous one. And this is good news for those who are brokenhearted, for those who are downcast, for those who are mournful of the sin in their lives. He comes And he brings you to him. But because he is also perfectly righteous, he cannot let sin slide. He can't do that. And thus he will strike with judgment those who are evil. And when we talk about evil, it's not simply evil acts that humans uh, 
perpetuate that there are certainly evil acts, but it is also the evil of those who reject him, who despise God himself, who hold God in contempt. In John chapter 3, verse 18, you know, 316, for God so loved the world, right? You got that one? Most people don't know 318. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have no fear of the second half of that verse. You have no fear. We hold fast to this. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. And that's good news. And we want others to join us in that good news. The good news is this. First Peter, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. This is the Messiah. He comes from the stump of Jesse, the root of which which shall bear fruit. And he has the fullness of the Spirit of God upon him, and he will judge with complete, perfect righteousness. Amen. So Jesus offers hope. He offers comfort. He offers joy. And He offers life. So we celebrate the life of the Messiah who gives us life. And that's the wonderful, good, good news. Amen.